This section will discuss the specific issue of Shiite martyrology as opposed to, uh, to Sunni martyrology. There's no doubt that martyrdom and martyrology is more localized in Shiism than it is in Sunnism. The history of Shiism has been that of an oppressed uh, community that has been on a regular basis throughout its history, the target of attacks, persecution, and uh, in certain cases, murder. This martyrology starts with the time of the first, uh, the, the first Shiite imam, Ali, who was assassinated in 661. Ali presents to, uh, to the analyst and to the reader of history a very interesting character. Uh, there's probably no other single figure in Muslim history other than the Prophet Muhammad who is more venerated uh, and who, about whom more issues of uh, idealization, personal bravery, and uh, the ideal qualities that are associated with uh, what what it means to be an Arab or a Muslim uh, are continually painted. Members of Ali's family uh, lauded him. Uh, his immediate followers continually uh, placed about his person what are known as fada'il or manakib, merits that describe his superior physical, uh, spiritual, cultural, linguistic, Islamic qualities uh, by the thousands, literally. Um, there's no end, in my opinion, to the sort of things that can be said about Ali. Uh, pages upon pages, books upon books have been written to uh, ensure that everyone considers him to be the best possible Muslim after uh, the time of the Prophet. Now, this is an opinion that is held, it's important to understand, by not just Shiites. But many Sunnis also hold that Ali is a, one of the most important Muslims. They just don't believe that that importance necessarily translates into the right of rule immediately after the time of the Prophet Muhammad. They would say that his merits are great, but not necessarily that much greater than those of Abu Bakr who actually took the uh, the caliphate after the time of the prophet. The point is, of all these different merits, undoubtedly is to cover up the fact that Ali was, on a personal level, a failure. He took power uh, in the immediate wake of the assassination of the third caliph, Uthman, in 656. And he immediately made a number of different mistakes that in other cases, probably might not have been fatal, but taken altogether, uh, led him inexorably to his doom. The first one was that he willfully chose to associate himself with the assassins of Uthman. The best historical evidence seems to indicate that Ali himself was not actually associated with the assassination of Uthman. The members of, of that group that assassinated Uthman were basically young hotheads uh, who had come from a number of the garrison towns around in Iraq and in Egypt uh, and had grabbed this old man uh, while he was reading his Quran uh, and butchered him in the most despicable way. And when the details of this murder 
became known to Muslims, there was pretty naturally a reaction against the, uh, the murders of Uthman. But Ali uh, chose actually to, um, uh, to associate himself with these assassins and actually appointed a large number of them to high office. A second issue was uh, the issue of his choosing of a capital. Uh, he very foolishly turned down the possibility of going to Syria, where he could have uh, taken possession of this most impo- important province of the Muslim empire at that time and neutralized his, his opposition. Instead, he went to Iraq, which at uh, that time, as this time, uh, is known for its factionalism, and its difficulty to rule. A third problem comes from uh, Ali's personality. And this is something that we cannot verify actually from the historical record, but just have to infer on the basis of how people reacted to him at that particular time. Uh, He appears to have had some sort of a character flaw that caused uh, people to uh, react negatively towards him. In other words, after, uh, after each one of the times where he won battles, and he won most of his battles, he was, he was gifted militarily, uh, instead of consolidating his political position, it, uh, it, it always caused people to, uh, to actually oppose him more. So on a continual basis, we saw, uh, you see him continually making enemies rather than uh, building coalitions that ultimately would lead to victory. Ali's assassination in 661 came as no particular surprise. Uh, It's doubtful that he would have been able to even last out that entire year uh, had he stayed alive. Now the question arises, why exactly is Ali lionized in this way? And I think that the answer really is is because he needs to be. Ali's position is, uh, is, is one that is stabilized by the fact that he was married to the Prophet's youngest daughter, Fatima, and uh, bore the Prophet's only male grandchildren that survived to maturity, Hassan and Hussein. And so... Of all the members of the Prophet's family, he was the only one who wasn't actually a blood descendant of the Prophet. And his rulership of the Muslim community was not predicated upon his actually being a descendant of the Prophet, uh, unlike other Shiites uh, would like for all rulers to be, but was predicated on the fact that he was married to the Prophet's daughter. And so, in many ways, he represents the weak link in, uh, in a process of the canonization of, a, of the 12 imams, the process by which these 12 imams became so crucially important to Shiites. He represents what is probably the weakest of all of their links. He's their ancestor, but uh, he is also the only one of them that is not actually a descendant of the prophet himself. There's also the fact of his death. The fact is, is his death is uh, of a romantic nature. Um, He is described as being killed by one of the most famous assassins in Muslim history, Ibn Muljam, uh, who supposedly 
uh, was in love with this young lady whose father had been killed by Ali and who asked for the head of Ali on a platter uh, to join her in her marriage. Ibn Muljam gave in to that, and so he's, uh, the, the assassination is said to have taken place in the following way. It says, Ali went out and called Allahu Akbar for the prayer, Allahu Akbar being the, uh, the, uh, the Muslim slogan, God is the greatest, and then recited from Surah Al-Anbiya, the Surah of the Quran, number 21, and then Ibn Muljam struck him from the row of worshippers on his head. And the people fell on him and took him and wrestled the sword from his hand while they were standing for prayer. Ali bowed and then prostrated himself. And then I saw him move his head from place to place because of the blood. And then he rose for a second prayer. And then he sat and proclaimed the Shahada, the Muslim confession of faith, and said the Salaam and leaned his back against the wall of the mosque. So his death here is described as being particularly tragic. He's struck down actually inside a mosque while he is leading the prayers, while he is reciting from the Quran, while he is uh, in this public place uh, as the Muslim's leader. So it's easy to understand the romantic sort of nature uh, that uh, that this assassination would uh, would attract. Um, but even so, the assassination of Ali did not actually give Muslims uh, that were ultimately to become Shiites their sectarian nature until about 40 uh, years, uh, 20 years later when uh, Ali's son, al-Hussein, was butchered at Karbala. Ali's first son, al-Hassan, is a very interesting second weak link in uh, the Shiite mar- uh, martyrology because uh, he is usually said to have given up the caliphate to his opponent, Muawiyah. Um, but we need not detain ourselves over long with al-Hassan. None of his descendants uh, turned out to be Shiites in the end, actually. Uh, all of them went back into the Sunni fold. But Ali's second son, al-Hussein, was of a much stronger uh, willed nature, and in 680 began to make moves uh, to possibly come to Iraq to uh, take power, at least on the invitation of the people of southern Iraq. But those people chose to betray him. They had promised him support, uh, and so he uh, passed across the desert from Medina and uh, came close to the area of the two rivers of Iraq, Uh, close to the river Euphrates, and learned that uh, the people of Iraq had been, since he had been in contact with them, actually subdued, and uh, they no longer had any capacity to help him out at all. And so he was trapped a little bit to the north of the settled area of uh, southern Iraq, uh, fairly close to uh, to the river Euphrates, without any water, together with his uh, family and children and some close, uh, some close supporters, usually said to be about 70 in number. And this group was uh, surrounded by horsemen from the Umayyad governor, usually said to be about 3,000 men. Uh, and over a period of several days, uh, they one by one took down all the members of Hussein's family, supporters, and friends until at last Al-Hussein 
was murdered on the 10th of Muharram, the day of Ashura. Now, this particular event uh, is definitely one of the road marks on the way to Shiite sectarianism. One can say that just about all Muslims had a negative reaction to the butchering of the prophet's grandson. Uh, there's oftentimes told the story of uh, of the uh, of the Jewish leader, the Resh Galutha, the the head of the uh, of the exile, who met with a prominent Muslim shortly after the murder of Hussein, and he said. He said, you know, I am descended uh, in over 60 generations from the prophet David, and uh, the Jews revere me, and they, uh, they bow down to me, they respect me in every single way, and they pay me taxes. He says, and, uh, and you have had this prophet just one generation ago, and you already butchered his grandson. There's a very strong feeling that the prophet's family has been fundamentally wronged in a way that cannot be justified and must be responded to. That Hussein's blood was not just that of a political opponent of the Umayyad regime, but that he represented the forces of good that had been butchered helplessly without any aid from other Muslims on the sands of Karbala. And that that event was of cosmic importance. And that it cannot, cannot be justified under any circumstances and must be repented from. In other words, the blood of Al-Hussein is something that continues to have significance really throughout human history, even above and beyond any other particular uh, assassination of descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. And there were a lot of those. So the attitude of the Shiites towards Hussein and Hussein's death has characterized their overall attitude towards martyrdom as well. For Sunnis, martyrdom is an issue of some amount of joy. Usually it's believed to be uh, uh, the culmination of one of two events, either leading to victory or martyrdom in battle. So either way, there's usually said to be some joy that's involved. And it's strictly forbidden for, Shia, uh, for Sunnis to, uh, to actually mourn a, a martyr. There should be rejoicing at the martyr's death rather than, uh, rather than any form of grief. For Shiites, the process is, ex is exactly the opposite. The, the necessity and tendency is, is to continually mourn, to see the, uh, the martyrdom process as being a mournful one and one that, that continually necessitates grief, tears, and sorrow. So, whereas among, among Sunnis you find a triumphalism uh, associated with martyrdom, among Shiites you find a passivity, an acceptance um, that is uh, quite different. 
Now, Hussein's death has also uh, been commemorated in a different way. Uh, it, it, it's it's a, a, a mournful time that has come to be a, an artistic expression. That artistic expression is localized around the word tazia, uh, which we could translate as passion play. A passion play is, uh, is a type of, of play or drama in which the uh, players all take on historical characters, such as those that, that actually killed Hussein, Hussein himself, his family, and so forth, and oftentimes will be performed by an entire village or town uh, with a large uh, scale of, of characters. This passion play is designed to increase the personal participation of the, uh, of the audience many of whom are related, actually, or uh, uh, to the people that are, are participating or are actually participating in it uh, themselves. And uh, so uh, throughout Iran, Iraq, and other different places where, uh, where Shiites have a population, uh, each year there has been a tazia. Uh, and oftentimes these are written... Uh, as, as as very unique artistic expressions, sometimes from the perspective of a, uh, of one of the female members of, of Hussein's party, sometimes her story will be told. Sometimes uh, uh, it'll be told from Hussein's perspective. Sometimes uh, uh, it'll work in a lot of different other themes that uh, that will make it exciting and unusual, and and, and bring the uh, the historical. And mythological elements of uh, of the murder of Hussein uh, to life. The fact is, uh, Shiite martyrology does not stop with Hussein. Um, all of the twelve imams, excepting the twelfth imam, who's in occultation, are usually said to have been uh, killed uh, by governmental officials in some way or another. Now that idea is a little too pat for scholars to accept in its totality. But having said that, there's no doubt that the prophet's family during the period between his death and around 920 or so uh, was one of the most persecuted families known to history. And uh, several writers have gathered large numbers of people, names uh, of members of the Prophet's family who uh, were murdered in various different gruesome ways during that time period. Uh, the most uh, best, or the best known of all those collections is uh, that of Abu al-Faraj al-Isfahani's uh, the, the slaughter of the Talibites, uh, the Talib, uh, Abu Talib being the father of Ali. In other words, the slaughter of all those people who are descended from, uh, from Ali's father. And it lists close to 200 members of the Prophet's family who were killed and gives each one of their stories, both male and female, where they were killed, how they were killed, and uh, in certain cases, what were the circumstances that were leading up to uh, their murders. So... One of the effects of that is is that there's a vast amount of sympathy for the prophet's family just on a human level that exists within Islam. And so there's a group 
which we uh, call, or what scholars call, pro-Alids. These are people that aren't necessarily Shiites, but have some sort of feeling that the prophet's family has been fundamentally treated unjustly and are somewhat sympathetic, actually, to the cause of the prophet's family. They might not be uh, willing to associate themselves with all the doctrinal beliefs of Shiism, but they are uh, of the feeling that, uh, that there's something fundamentally wrong right there. And as a matter of fact, Isfahani falls into that category. Never a Shiite, but somebody who was willing to actually uh, proclaim their propaganda in a way that uh, was actually far more effective than they could themselves. So there's a very strong feeling that, uh, the, that the Prophet's family have been wronged. Now, the problem is, uh, is, the, is that that sense of wrongness doesn't necessarily translate into the idea that the prophet's family have the right to rule. So pro-Alids are willing to say that the prophet's family have been wronged, but they aren't necessarily willing to say that uh, there is an imperative that they must jump from the prison camp into the Caliphal palace. There's also a very strong sense uh, from, uh, from Shiite martyrology that that wrongness will not be justified, will not be, uh, be rectified until the end of the world. In other words, uh, the blood of Hussein continues to be protesting, to be a living entity that continues to to bubble forth from the earth, as it were, in protest against the fundamental injustice of his murder to this very day. And that will continue because the blood of the oppressors of Hussein has never been shed. They never faced any form of justice. And so it is necessary for the imam, the last imam, the 12th imam, to appear and to demand justice from all of humanity that refused to support Hussein in his final hours. So there is a certain character of Christ-likeness to Hussein. And this is something that has not gone unnoticed by Sunnis, who oftentimes accuse Shiites of being somehow or another closet Christians, um, an accusation that Shiites uh, very strongly reject. Um, there's a very strong sense within the, within the Shiite community that it, there, the, the community uh, building is achieved through persecution, and even a sense that, uh, that, that one draws persecution upon oneself willingly in order to foster sort of a community building. Um, there's a certain passivity that's associated with Shiites from a historical point of view. In general, they focused themselves very strongly upon what the Sunni community was doing. Just about all martyrs that were that are mentioned in Shiite literature were martyred by Sunnis. And so that changes to some extent their perspective on martyrdom. Whereas Sunnis were almost all martyred by uh by non Muslims, 
Shiites, almost all of their martyrs were generated by people who at least claimed to be Muslims. So there's a very different focus, a very different perspective as far as the use of violence goes between Sunnis and Shiites. Sunnis uh, view violence as at least ideally pointing outwards somewhere expanding the, uh, the, the world of Islam, leading to a triumphal victory of Islam that ultimately will occur. Shiites re- regard violence as usually being directed inwards towards them. And so they're very familiar with the idea of being politically, religiously, and personally helpless and desire very strongly that figure of the Mahdi who is more or less a superman and who can make everything right, bring forth the just state, and demand justice from from Sunnis. Now, from a contemporary point of view, the martyrology of, uh, of Shiites has had a profound effect on the way that Shiites deal with difficult situations. And I'm going to bring forth a couple of, uh, of issues right here. Probably the best one to start off with would be the Iran-Iraq war. Um, as uh, I mentioned in, in the previous section, the war, which lasted between 1980 and 88, is usually called in, in Persian the imposed war, which already one can see the essentially passive nature or at least perceived passive nature of the Shiite community in Iran. They were attacked by this foreign state with the support of most of the, uh, of the Sunni world and forced to sacrifice large sections of their community in order to defend uh, Iran as, uh, as an entity and most specifically as a Shiite entity. Now, the methods by which they were willing to do that are distinctively Shiite. And they involved mass sacrifice. In many different cases, uh, Shiites, Iranians, uh, were forced to, or, or, or even volunteered, to clear minefields manually. In other words, by simply walking over them and dying one by one in order to clear Uh, various different areas. And so these sort of human wave mass attacks that were uh, associated with Iran, especially during that uh, that initial desperate time of 1980 to 1982, when significant sections of Iran were actually controlled by uh, its opponent, Iraq, uh, were the crystallizing points of contemporary Iranian Shiite martyrology. And today what one sees actually is uh, sold in the popular market is a number of different martyrologies commemorating those particular horrific events, long lists of martyrs, uh, graveyards associated with the martyrs. Um, Today in the book markets you can see various different miracles that are associated with the Mahdi, where he appears on the battlefield and leads the martyrs forward. Uh, these are accompanied with, uh, 
with heroic images. Uh, the Mahdi will appear, uh, clasp, uh, sometimes white, around a given uh, young man and lead him forth into, uh, into his ultimate death and martyrdom. So Iran has really pioneered that kind of a new, more activist Shiite uh, martyrdom. But it was really in southern Lebanon that we find an even further manifestation of that, where uh, starting in the 1970s, uh, a charismatic uh, young Iraqi uh, by the name of, uh, of Musa Sadr uh, appeared and began to coalesce around himself a Shiite movement that would try and create something of a Shiite counterstate. Uh, in the south. In general, Shiites uh, in Lebanon had been marginalized up until that period and uh, had to some extent been occupied and even violated by the uh, Palestinian refugees that had taken power in southern Lebanon uh, close to the border with Israel. It was due to Musa Sadr's uh, organizational abilities that the Shiites were able to uh, to free themselves from that, even though he himself disappeared in uh, 1977. Um, but throughout the 1980s, uh, the, uh, the Shiites of southern Lebanon were able to develop themselves into effective organizations that ultimately uh, were supposed to, uh, to liberate uh, different areas of southern Lebanon from uh, the control of Israel. And that they did. Uh, by the year 2000, uh, Israel had withdrawn. Uh, the methodology that was especially closely associated with the group of Hezbollah, Hezbollah meaning the party of God, uh, was one of martyrdom. And uh, it's very interesting how many tactics that were uh, to be closely associated with Muslim radicals were developed in that particular area uh, against, uh, against Israel. Starting in 1982, one finds a pattern of, uh, of mass suicide attacks, especially against uh, foreign troops such as the French, uh, the United States uh, Marines in October of uh, 1982 that were carried out by Shiites, uh, although they've never been completely, completely associated with Hezbollah uh, one strongly suspects that either Hezbollah or uh, an organization closely allied with it uh, would have been responsible for that. And the interesting thing was uh, about these tactics was the fact that, that suicide as a tactic did not present just a terrible amount of difficulty for Shiites. As we'll see in the next section, that was not true of Sunnis. For Sunnis, the idea of committing suicide in order to bomb someone had to have extensive, extensive legal support for uh, it to be accepted within the wider, wider community. For Shiites, in contradistinction, uh, Hezbollah very, very calmly understood suicide attacks to be entirely functional and did not glorify them in any way outside of the norm. Uh, a couple of years ago, in 2007, I listened to, uh, to Sheikh 
Nasrallah as he commemorated the uh, the withdrawal of Israel, and he touched upon the issue of using suicide attacks. It's very interesting to note the pattern behind the use of suicide attacks that uh, that, uh, that was common with Hezbollah between 1982 and 1989 uh, was the law of diminishing results. The fact was that uh, the earliest uh, suicide attacks, especially between 1982 and 1985, were the mass suicide attacks. In other words, ones in which large numbers, sometimes up to 70, 80 people uh, or more, were killed in one uh, fell swoop. Gradually, gradually from 1986 uh, until 1989, one finds a pattern of uh, the law of diminishing results with regard to, to suicide attacks and revealed a, a, a strategic truth that was later to be problematic in, among Sunnis, that suicide attacks are actually only successful against civilians. They are not successful usually against a military, unless there's some sort of extraordinarily stupid uh, leadership involved that refuses on a systematic level to learn any sort of, uh, of lessons from attacks against them. This was not the case with regard to Israel. Uh, although Israel lost significant people uh, in uh, the initial suicide attack uh, campaign that was leveled against it between 1982 and 84, by 1985, when one looks at the numbers of people that are killed by Hezbollah suicide attacks, they're down to merely ones, twos, and sometimes only the bomber themselves uh, are, are the actual people that die. And so it's clear that by 1989 and 1990 that uh, suicide attacks were simply viewed as being ineffectual by, by Hezbollah and uh, were abandoned as a tactic, uh, and you do not find them after, uh, after 1990 uh, used against Israel. Hezbollah moved on to other different tactics. Um, other areas of the Muslim world uh, that have been in conflict have been uh, Iraq and Pakistan. And here I'd like to hi highlight something with regard to, uh, to the uh, Shiite political and religious leadership in both uh, Iraq and Pakistan, which is the fact that bo in both cases uh, throughout the 1990s, and at least in Pakistan, and most, uh, most especially starting from 2001 and in, uh, in Iraq since 2003, uh, in both cases, uh, the communities of Shiites in these areas have been the targets of a systematic pattern of suicide attacks that has, uh, that has lasted for years and killed thousands upon thousands of Shiites in both cases usually initiated by radical Muslim Sunnis, which we will discuss during the next section. The most important and interesting thing about this, uh, about this campaign is the fact that never once, never even once, have Shiites responded by carrying out a suicide attack in retaliation. Shiites have responded in other ways, by various different death squads and so forth, and by riots 
and a number of different other ways, but they have never, ever responded to Sunnis using actual suicide attacks. Suicide attacks among Shiites are very closely localized with authority from the ulama. And I think that that's really the difference there between the use of suicide terrorism and uh, and uh, and the sort of terrorism that you find among uh, among Sunnis is that with Sunnis it really is actually a personal issue rather than a hierarchical issue. Among Shiites, apparently the decision was made at some particular time not to retaliate to these mass attacks using suicide and revenge, uh, but to use other different tactics. So, in conclusion, uh, I would like to highlight the fact that, uh, that martyrology among Shiites is considerably different from that among Sunnis. Martyrology among Shiites is, is much more directed towards Sunnis, it's much more passive, it's much more grief-laden, and uh, it's much more conscious of the large number of martyrs that, that have not received any sort of justice after their, uh, after their murder that have existed on the part of the prophet's family and that must await the very end of the world in order to receive the justice they need. Thank you.